1: perspective on late Tudor foreign policy has been dominated by both the story of elites at the Elizabethan court and by Victorian ideas about the foundations of empire. Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh have often featured. But what if we were to turn our picture of the Elizabethan geopolitical world on its head? What if it's not really about the power and nascent empire of England, but about England as a bit player, interacting with far more powerful empires, Spain, Persia and the Ottomans, an Islamic empire that spanned three continents and ruled an estimated 15 million people? Today's guest has taken this different perspective. Jerry Broughton is Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary, University of London, but probably better known to you as the author of some really wonderful books which have been published in 20 languages worldwide. The New York Times bestseller, A History of the World in 12 Maps, or The Renaissance Bazaar, From the Silk Road to Michelangelo, among them. In 2016, he published a fabulous book called This Orient Isle, Elizabethan England and the Islamic World. and That's the focus of our conversation today. His forthcoming book, published by Penguin and also to be a BBC Radio 4 tie-in, explores the history and symbolism of the four points of the compass. But the story he tells today is of encounters and transactions between Muslims and Elizabethan Protestants and it upends our understanding of the Tudors. Professor Broughton, Jerry, it is wonderful to have you on here. I'm so excited to talk to you about these things, which I think don't yet form part of our idea of the Tudors. And it's so important to kind of connect them into the wider world. And I wondered if we could start doing that. As you start in your book, you talk about the visit of Abd al-Wahid bin Masud bin Muhammad al-Anuri, a Moroccan ambassador to the court of Elizabeth I in 1009 in the Muslim calendar or November 1600 in the Julian Christian calendar. Tell us about this delegation and why it was so extraordinary.
2: It is extraordinary because it really culminates about 40, 50 years of Tudor relations with the Islamic world. And this is a very specific encounter, which is what we would now call with Morocco. So he's also known as al Honori. So I'm going to call him that as well. There are two ways in which this guy is referred to. But he comes as part of a high level diplomatic delegation in 1600 to London to work with Elizabeth to set up an Anglo-Islamic alliance against the Spanish. He's a highly educated, multilingual figure. There's a portrait that survived, which is in the Shakespeare Institute, that nobody's known what to do with forever. And now the history tells us that it's a very significant diplomatic moment because Elizabeth is in alliance with various Islamic kingdoms, including Morocco. al anouri comes to set up an alliance. It's a diplomatic and a military alliance. He stays on the Strand. He comes with a delegation. There are accounts of how he worships, how he eats food, halal. He meets Elizabeth twice. There's a high-level agreement that they're going to have an alliance between Elizabeth and the Moroccan kingdom, an alliance against the Catholics, against Spain. It doesn't come off, but it doesn't come off because Elizabeth is too concerned that it might conflict with a much longer standing, closer alliance with the Ottomans. Now, again, this is just news to, I think, most people who look at the Tudors because you don't think of that level of connection with the Islamic world. But in fact, it's absolutely integral to the diplomacy, to the culture, to the politics of Elizabethan England. So it doesn't come off, the alliance doesn't sort of prosper and Elizabeth dies shortly afterwards. But the visit, I think, is extraordinary. People talk about how powerful this figure is, how significant he is. And within a year, Shakespeare writes Othello. So there are interesting connections. I'm not explicitly saying al Unuri is Othello and vice versa, but this guy is so visible that I think that Shakespeare is aware of that level of Anglo-Islamic connections which have been going on throughout his lifetime. The drama of the period is replete With figures from that world and it's just been there hidden in plain view he was hidden in plain view that longer history of culture diplomacy and trade with the islamic world has been hidden in plain view and it's just something that hasn't been recognized and i think there are obvious reasons for that it's a sort of focus on an english national approach to what the tudors are about there is a notion that there's a new world encounter but certainly not with islam and many people would say to me this is scandalous absolutely extraordinary is this really true i remember when i wrote it my editor just said I don't believe that there's this level of connection between the Islamic world and Tudor England. But there it is. It's there in the archives. It's there in the material culture. It's there in the paintings of the period. We've just missed
1: it. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts?
2: Well, part of it, I think, is that sort of notion of cultural nationalism that we've tended to focus on, obviously, elite royal politics. We don't look at merchants and, as it were, on the ground exchanges. So much of the book was about that, the way in which the merchants are quietly transacting and doing business with Persia, with what we now call Turkey, with the Ottoman Empire, with Northwest Africa. So I think that it's your focus, where you look, and I think that that notion of an encounter with what's often been regarded as an alien culture, like Islam. Many scholars and critics sort of knew and they touched on this, but they just didn't want to go there. It was unrecognisable, they couldn't understand it. It was a culture that they didn't really understand. I think High Renaissance and Tudor cultural history from the 19th century has bled out those cross-cultural encounters beyond the New World ones, that's always been the focus. Rarely do you get that encounter with what you might call the old world of Africa and Asia. And there's probably a personal connection. You know, I grew up in Bradford in the 1980s, so I was hanging out with Muslim, you know, Hindu and Sikh kids. And it wasn't that that was somehow an idealised moment. There was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of racism, to be frank. But I think it attuned me when I was doing work in this field to sort of keep bumping up against this material and going... There is this connection, every great Tudor figure, you name any of them, Essex, Leicester, Walsingham, they all have some finger in a pie of a diplomatic or commercial or political or military connection to the Islamic world. And as I say, many people have said to me since, wow, we just missed this. We just didn't see it. And that's always kind of quite exciting, I think, as you know, when you do that archival research, you break open a new element of the story.
1: Absolutely. Do you think something about it might be about terms? They weren't using the term Muslim. They probably weren't using the words Islamic world. I mean, what terms were they using and do you think that's part of
2: it? Absolutely. I think that's a big deal. You know, the terms Islam and Muslim do not enter the English language. You look it up in the OED, it's really in the teens, 1620s that that language first starts to appear. So I think you're absolutely right. The language that's used is a series of synonyms. So if you talk about Ottomans, that's a catch all for people who are broadly regarded as or vaguely understood in this period as being Muslim. Saracen, you know, Otomite, Persians, Moors, the term Moors is just, again, it's this catch-all term. So I think you're right, because when I started doing the book initially, I wanted to call it Shakespeare and Islam. And people said that's just too provocative. You know, Shakespeare does not have an understanding of Islam. But I kept saying, but you see so much of the drama. You think of Marlowe's Tamburlaine, you know, he's a Scythian, but he's... Encountering Ottoman sultans and Moors and Saracens and Persians and all these various synonyms that are an attempt to understand English Protestant, and that's very important, Protestant connection with what they see as what we would now broadly call the Islamic world. You know, in the field still, it's been broken down. So Miranda Kaufman has done great work on black Tudors, talking about the idea of the Moors and that that obviously is a racial dimension. I look at that work and say absolutely applaud it and say it's also a religious question because all those figures that we're trying to reintegrate into the cultural history of the period are not only black, but they're Muslim. So the work gets sort of broken down into different bits. Many people talk about the Ottomans and the Turkish presence in this period. Some talk about Moors, some talk about Persia. Persia's become a big thing. A lot of people writing about that. So I think you're right. It's about the language that's being used, the misunderstanding of that religious encounter. What do people in, say, the 1560s think when they encounter somebody who is of the Muslim faith? And it's also about how broken up that is. So my attempt really was to just try and pull a bit of that together and say there are all these different moments, different kinds of encounters, but there's a consistency to it. There's a consistency to the way in which the Elizabethan state is working with the Islamic world, primarily because it's an attempt to deal with the threat from Spanish Catholicism. So my enemy's enemy is my friend in this respect. So you reach out to the Islamic world in various facets, the Ottomans, the North African Moroccan kingdoms, and then also Persia. But what comes with that, again, if you look at, as it were, people on the ground, the sort of lost history of people who are just trying to work and accommodate and trade and transact in the Mediterranean, it leads to all kinds of unintended consequences. English men and women who are converting to Islam, in the 1570s. This has been a story that's been completely hidden. And people who say, do you know what, in the 1570s, Islam might look like a better option than Protestantism in England, which might be snuffed out at any minute by the Spanish. So once we sort of rethink that sort of religious political dynamic, I think the whole look of what's going on changes in this period.
1: That's really interesting. And I suppose, actually, there's evidence that the fascination of Protestant Christians, perhaps we could say, with the Islamic world, actually predates the Elizabethans. Are there examples that you can give us from earlier in that century?
2: (sighs) So there is an interest that you get in the early Tudors. So Henry VIII notably is fascinated by the Ottomans because one thing that happens is that in terms of all those geopolitical and imperial games that are played between the French and the Spanish and the Ottomans and the Tudors, Henry of course wants to be at that top table. There is a moment in the 1530s when there's a proposed alliance between Henry VIII, Francis I and Suleiman the Magnificent anybody goes into the National Gallery and looks at the ambassadors, the ambassadors in 1533 is about the possibility of that kind of alliance. The French are already politically and and diplomatically in bed with the Ottomans. That's a much longer alliance. Henry wants to be part of that. It doesn't come off for various reasons, but that is seen as a sort of anti-Spanish Catholic alliance which is absolutely possible and Henry then loves that he dresses up in Ottoman outfits at parties we forget again that when you look at the Tudor portraiture what we might call the oriental dimension is absolutely there you look at the slashed outfits the clothes that the women are wearing particularly you know the silks they're all Ottoman the designs are all Ottoman now, we've tended to say that is therefore quintessentially Tudor slash Renaissance. Henry's kind of exoticizing it. There's no doubt it is an exoticization, but it's absolutely there. So that's there really in that earlier Tudor moment. And certainly under Mary, there's an attempt again to get to Persia. There's trade and travel with the Persian empire in the 1550s before Elizabeth comes to the throne. But I think what I notice that the big shift, so you're right that there are those connections, but the big shift is 1570. When Elizabeth is excommunicated officially by the papacy, that leads to a kind of real break. And again, one of the things that's not noticed about that is that what Elizabeth says is, I have now been categorised as a heretic. So therefore, I can go and I'm outside a papal jurisdiction to work with other supposed heretics, like Islam. So Protestants in the Catholic imagination are seen as heretics, just as Muslims are. So therefore, Elizabeth very candidly says, right, well, I'll turn that round and I'll make a strategic alliance with other supposed heresies. So that moment of excommunication, which is often taken into other questions about, you know, recusancy and what happens when Catholics have to basically take a stand against Elizabeth, all very true and how that leads in the end to what happens to Mary, Queen of Scots. But at the same time, it creates an opportunity for reaching out to the Islamic world as inferiors. The Elizabethan state, Walsingham, Burley, Elizabeth are all very clear. This is a greater imperial power. They are reaching out to them as subjects. We see this whole period through the wrong end of the telescope. You know, this is not about the Elizabethans saying, come and trade with us. The Ottomans are like, you don't have anything that we want. <laughs> We've got all the goodies that you want. We have all the power that you want. You want to work with us militarily. We can help. But you know what? You're a bit player. And it's important, I think, to just say, I think that comes back to the question you're asking, why is it therefore being missed? And that's a tradition around Orientalism. So the Orientalist myth through the 18th and 19th century, you know, that says the East is this kind of exotic, but indolent and politically, technologically backward player. Edward Said wrote about that in 1978. We all read that and we all absolutely got that. But Said himself admitted to me that he didn't get that in the Renaissance period, that's not how it looked. In the Renaissance period, the Ottomans were the big player. They controlled as much territory, if not more, than Spain. So Elizabeth reaches out in the 1570s pretty much as a supplicant, says, I want to be under your umbrella. And of course, the Ottomans say, the more the merrier. Our power resides in the fact that, yep, if you're Jewish, if you're Protestant, you can all come under our umbrella because we're so powerful. We don't really care. If you just want to trade with us, as long as you're not making war with us, then that's fine.
1: Actually, something I come back to quite a lot is the ways in which we distort things because we've seen them through later centuries. You mentioned Miranda Kaufman's work or Onyeka Nubia's, where they're saying, actually... When we look at the relationship between people who are of North African origin who are ending or African origin more broadly, actually, who are ending up in England in this period of time. We don't see them experiencing racism because that's something that I mean, this is arguable. The system of the Middle Passage and slavery across the Atlantic is entrenching the idea of racism. And it's same as true, as you say, about Orientalism. And I suppose the other thing is also an idea since in the Victorian period, which is about empire and British superiority, and you've got to trace that back. So you trace that back to the Elizabethans and to Drake and Raleigh. and. You can't admit at that point that the English are peripheral to geopolitics, really, at that point.
2: I think you're absolutely right that the Victorian period is so crucial in shaping a version of what the Tudors are all about and what the Renaissance is all about. It's a moment where scholars like Jacob Burkhart, who writes the Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, invents the term. It's a totally invented term. The 19th century invents the term Renaissance. And with that comes a sort of British imperial notion of what the Tudors are all about. An early moment of this confident, globalising outreach into the new world, the formation of the East India Company and the foundations of the British Empire. It is a nonsense. It's a fantasy which is constructed by Victorian imperial power politics and also scholarship. So much of that scholarship which is still very much embedded in what we do. The Hakluet Society work that came out of that, it was about editing that work and creating and sort of literally whitewashing a version of cultural encounter in this period and we're still working outwards i think from the consequences of that walter pater's work on the renaissance all that stuff from the late 19th century is i think still very much shadowing how we talk about the birth of subjectivity it's predominantly white and it's male and as you know with your work, and as I know with the work that I'm doing, that is an absolute nonsense. And that's the work, I guess, that we're now doing. It's not about trying to then invert things. It's about giving you a richer picture. You know, when we see the culture wars at the moment and the way in which people say, oh, yeah, the way in which this is just completely taking down a certain notion or you know, diminishing the achievements, it's not. It's about actually giving a much broader and more complicated and interesting picture. It's adding to that story, not to say that there's not a critique, but it's just adding a different dimension. I think that that's so important to how we understand the period.
1: Absolutely. And I think also, without wishing to sound like I'm enthralled to a kind of conviction that we can achieve objectivity in history, I do ultimately think that even if we don't think we can achieve it, we're trying to be truthful in the stories we tell about the past. And that the richer and the fuller the picture that we can give, the more we're going to resemble the past. But I mean, I would put my hands up and say, I mean, I have definitely peddled some of these things along the way. Totally mere culpa. I've been learning to unpick my own thinking in the past about the Tudor period.
2: As I did, I mean, I had to do the same. I mean, coming through the system in the 80s and early 90s, I kept going, hang on, this is not what I've been taught. This is not the approach that I thought was true. It's like the same thing, say, with Elizabethan drama. There are 60 or 70 plays in this period, which actually from what survives is quite a high count, of plays which have significant Muslim characters or Muslim settings. We just missed it. You think about Marlowe's Tamburlaine, the Jew of Malta, and then you get into Shakespeare because Othello, but then you go, well, yeah, what about Titus Andronicus that has a mora? What about even the Merchant of Venice because one of the suitors is the Prince of Morocco? And all those other playwrights simile. In the 1590s, everybody does a Turk play without exception. The irony is that and people go, well, Shakespeare doesn't, and I've always said, yes, because he can't do it anymore because there's too much stuff on the Turks, so he does Moors. It's just always been there. And we taught it and we just bled it out. We didn't sort of comment on it. Decades of scholarship on Othello, which never really talked about the fact, since Coleridge said, you know, he couldn't quite deal with the fact that Othello was a black man. (laughs) and that's still carried on working through in the scholarship so no you're absolutely right it's a way of completely reinventing a sense of what the field is like and as you say a form of objectivity to say this material is there here it is it's in the literature it's in the archives it's in the material culture but I think as you would know with the work you do I think we also say all history is driven to some extent by histories of the present we're just I think more alive to that than would have been happening, say, in the late Victorian period. So it still, of course, is driven by an agenda because we feel that putting that work out there is very important for our understanding of the present, how we got here, and I feel that very much. I mean, in this current moment, some of the work that I do since doing the book, some of the proudest stuff I've done, is working with mosques, going to Harrow Mosque, and doing this work and giving this material and finding it deeply moving when late middle-aged Muslim women in the mosque say, Why does it need you, a white middle-aged professor, to come and tell us this story about inclusivity, about the presence of Islam so far back? Why have we not heard this story before? And it's very moving. And in our current moment and our current climate, I think of the nationalism and xenophobia and parochialism that we confront, we need more than ever, I think, to tell a different story about the Tudors because that becomes such a litmus test. I think of contemporary cultural understandings of Englishness. And there is a different story there.
0: Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the history hit Warfare podcast. From the Napoleonic Battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11, we reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have
2: achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary
0: technologies.
1: At the time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of
0: great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of
2: finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the
0: place... In trillion dollar wars, or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
1: So let's pick up on that story. And as you say, really crucially, things changed from 1570. But there's one thing before that I'd like us to touch on, because you talk about the achievements of a 24 year old called Anthony Jenkinson. And you say, if the history of Anglo-Ottoman relations begins anywhere, it's with him. So I think you have to tell us about him and what he did next.
2: Anthony Jenkinson is extraordinary. And he's part of this raft of people, of course, that don't survive very much in the record because they're not elite. They're mainly merchants working in the Mediterranean. There's no portraits of them. The stuff that survives is usually very dull commercial transactions. But what we do know about Jenkinson is that in the 1550s, he's trading in what we would now call the Middle East, in Aleppo. And he meets... Probably the most powerful man in the world, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, who just happens to be kind of grooving through (laughs) Aleppo on his way to fight the Persians. And Jenkinson makes the first commercial deal between an English trader and a Muslim ruler, which is kind of extraordinary. He meets Suleiman, he talks about what he's wearing, talks about his turban, talks about the silks he's wearing. Kind of amazing. He comes back to England. He then has a series of most amazing trips and travels. He works for the Muscovy Company and he goes through Russia. But again, it's this language that you pointed out before. The problem is people say Muscovy Company, Anthony Jenkinson, oh, it's about Russia. What the Muscovy Company was really about was to try and get to Persia. He did, in fact, get to Persia. He gets to Kisvan in 1562, I think it was, and he meets the Shah. He tries to establish, again, a commercial deal. It only breaks down because the Shah says, I'm sorry, but I've just made a deal with the Ottomans. We've suddenly hit peace for a change, and I can't work with you. But Jenkinson comes back. He then does establish, really, some terms for working with Persia. Persia's just too far. But he is amazing because, as I say in the book, You know, he meets a sultan, a shah and a czar because he meets the Russian czar en route. So this is kind of extraordinary as a way of thinking about cultural encounter driven by trade. But along the way, the stuff that comes out, I think, is fascinating. So Jenkinson talks about his encounters and he starts talking about the theological distinctions he sees on his travels between Sunni and Shia versions of Islam. Now, this is extraordinary. And when I talk about the book, I often say to audiences, here is an Englishman in the 1560s talking about the theological differences in Islam. How many people here could put their hand up and tell me the difference between Sunni and Shia? So how far have we come? And if we really want to talk about our engagement with the Islamic world, I think we need to know a little bit more in that way. So Jenkinson, an extraordinary man, and he straddles the different regimes, that sort of messy period between Mary into Elizabeth. He's really travelling for 20, 30 years. Amazing figure. So for me, he's kind of very, very important. And he sort of really kickstarts an understanding that an encounter with the Islamic world can be politically and commercially profitable for the Tudors. But Persia's is just that little bit too far, and that's why the Ottomans come into play, because it's easier to really work with the Ottomans through the Mediterranean, because otherwise you're going up really into the Arctic Circle, going down through Maman's, getting to Moscow. It's a hell of a journey. But Jenkinson is important, I think, in putting into view a sense in which there is an encounter out there and it could be profitable.
1: But he's also getting things wrong, I suppose would be a nice way of putting it, There are misunderstandings of course that happen in these moments of encounter and I was really tickled by the fact that whilst he might be noticing the distinction between these two branches of Islam, what particularly occupies him is that they have different moustaches. (laughs) That Sunnis and Shia have different moustaches. I mean, like, talk about (laughs) sort of focusing on the small thing as opposed to the major differences.
2: But of course, as I always say, he's really like a sort of Marks and Spencers retailer because (laughs) he is trading in cloth effectively. So you're right, he endlessly is trying to work out these theological distinctions and then he kind of cuts off into a whole Sort of long discourse about silk or linen, because really that's his sort of business and that's what he's interested in. And you know, it's very important to say this is not some absolutely bravura cosmopolitan encounter. There's a much darker, difficult side to it. It's unclear quite how he acquires, but he either is given or is sold a slave woman called Aurea Sultana, who he brings back to England. And You know, the description there is very difficult because he is encountering an awful sort of gender-sex traffic in women and slavery, and she is a tantalising figure. Again, I keep thinking often of the kind of work that you do about trying to recover those women's voices. We can't recover her voice. We seem to have a portrait of her. She comes back. There seems to be a story that she works in Elizabeth's court and that she's actually advising on, again, clothing and fashion. But she's a fascinating, tantalising figure that's sort of really just on those margins. I'd love to know if we could more about that story. So that's folded into the Jenkinson story. As you say, some of it is very open. Some of it is completely misunderstood. Much of it is driven about trade and finance. And there are people who lose out. There are victims in the middle of this story as well. And is she or is she not? You know, I loved the idea that she sort of works that through and she finds her niche in Tudor London, this woman who's come from a Circassian sort of slave culture in Central Asia. It's kind of a remarkable story. And again, these stories that we desperately want to try and get back to. But as you know, the problem of the archive is so tantalising in terms of what it does give us. And then when the road stops, and you can't find more that you want, and you know, there's something there that you can't quite get
1: it. I know it all too well. Yeah, the problem of dealing with stories without endings, that's one of the challenges, isn't it? So after his return, he comes back in 1560, Elizabeth writes to the Persian emperor, the great Sophie, as they were calling him in England at the time. But really, we need to look, as you said, after the bull of excommunication, Regnus and exorcists in 1570. And we get Elizabeth sending her first ambassador to Morocco, is that right, in the 1570s?
2: Yeah, informally the trade has already been established. So there are independent merchants who are doing this work on their own back. So Jenkinson is one example. There are people working in what they call Barbary in northwest Africa from the 1550s. Interestingly, Elizabeth always uses her proxy. So Leicester, her great favourite, starts to run that trade because he sees it as very profitable. And Elizabeth is always very canny around all these commercial organisations. It's a very important issue about joint stock companies, the way in which English merchants start to build up a joint stock capital to make their investments in this work, to, yes, get Elizabeth's seal of approval. But it's kind of wonderfully John Le Carrier, you know, she says, but if you get your fingers burnt, I'm not involved here, right? I'll take some of the cash, but, you know, you're on your own if you get burnt and Leicester fronts it a lot. So you start to get these sole traders who then morph into the Barbary Company. Leicester's pretty much bankrolling it and they're going out really from the 1560s and then the trade really takes off and it's a sort of arms to Iraq story because these figures are trading what do they have they don't have very much they can bring I always think it's a funny story what do the English have wool where does wool not play very well well you know in the Mediterranean so you know you turn up in Persia with a lot of wool and people are going you got anything else so what do they have munitions So what starts to happen, the early stages of the Barbary Company trade, are that these sole traders, with the support of Leicester, are arming the Barbary kingdoms. They're taking out saltpeter and they're taking out weapons in exchange for silks for gold from the Trans-Saharan trade route, and that's coming back into England. And you start to see the impact of that in sort of everyday culture. But the Barbary trade is kind of fascinating because many of the intermediaries that the English merchants are using as well are Jewish merchants. So again, you think of plays like The Jew of Malta and Merchant of Venice. It's not about Venice. I think all these plays are really kickstarted by what happens in the Barbary states, by English merchants working with Jewish intermediaries. So another layer again, of theology and religious difference as well as trade that's going on. And again, it's very anti-Spanish. So it's both enriching the English polity, but it's also giving them a bullock against Spain. And there's a great moment in 1588 where the English merchants in Marrakesh start celebrating the defeat of the Armada. The Spanish who are in Marrakesh then get very angry. An Englishman is attacked and wounded. And the Moroccans go, what is wrong with you lot? What is wrong with you Christians? You know, again, it's such a fascinating moment. You know, what's your problem? As they see these kind of apparent Christians, so confident, at each other's throats. So the whole Reformation moment is so fascinating that Islam is watching it going, well, this is a deeply divided religion. And there's this kind of Sunni-Shia issue. I think that that's always so fascinating that these two schisms are confronting each other and looking at each other in so many different complex ways. So the whole kind of Marrakesh-London connection, I think, is really fascinating and goes right through back to the story of Ala Nuri. So it runs all the way to 1600 and those diplomatic and commercial relations which are driven by, yes, trade, but also an anti-Catholic and anti-Spanish sentiment. How can we work together against the Spanish? And really, that is a whole argument right through to Al-Anuri, which uses the language of Reconquista. Is it possible to reconquer Muslim Spain with the help of Protestant English naval power? I mean... That's just does your head in around a certain notion about what English Tudor politics is supposed to be about. And Elizabeth is like, yep, yeah, let's do this. They even talk about trying to invade the New World together. Let's knock over the Spanish settlements in the New World. Morocco's well positioned on the Atlantic. The English under Drake have a great navy. Blimey, what an amazing vault fast of our understanding of that moment in time.
1: And there's also a new Ottoman sultan, Murad III, who is an extraordinary character. Um, you might want to tell us about him. And we've got another man who's sent to lead a trade deal, perhaps one of the most important men most of us have never heard of, William Harborne. Tell us about how he fared.
2: I mean, this is an extraordinary story, probably even more extraordinary than Jenkinson. So William Harborne is a trader from, of all places, Great Yarmouth, and in 1578 he's working with various commercial companies and he is given the role of going out to istanbul to work with murad iii to establish a commercial deal francis walsingham is very much behind it i think that he drives it elizabeth signs off on it they send harborne out via poland it's very sort of cloak and dagger he gets to istanbul he makes high level encounters with the Ottoman port in the Topkapi Sarai, these kind of great images of this Englishman from great Yarmouth <laughs> who goes to one of the great cosmopolitan cities of the world and ends up in an audience with Murad III, who says, look, I'm the greatest emperor in the world. And, you know, he has reason to say that in terms of the just the sheer scale of Ottoman territory at the time. Harbon then concocts this incredible deal called the Capitulations. It's based on the French deals that they have, a commercial deal and diplomatic deal with the Ottomans, which is to be given preferential trading rights to operate in the Ottoman territories, favourable tax breaks, complete freedom. So they come under the rule, the sovereignty of the Ottomans. They cannot be harmed. And Harbon does this deal, and it's a deal which stays from 1580 to 1922, when the Ottoman Empire officially falls and the Republic is established. So it's one of the longest standing diplomatic and commercial deals in English history, again, forgotten. And Harbon's accounts are extraordinary. You know, he's working across different languages. He's working very closely with the interpreters in the Ottoman court. He's then running a whole team of English merchants right through from across northwest Africa into Libya, Tripoli, they're in Aleppo, in the Turkish territories. And again, rather like the Barbary trade, it's very much about exchanging munitions for the goods that have come all the way through the Silk Road that the Ottomans control. So Harborn in 1582 is then fronting this incredible situation where the Elizabethans are taking lead stripped from deconsecrated Catholic churches to make bullets to arm the Ottoman soldiers in their wars against the Spanish. Now this is extraordinary. You know, it's really amazing. And all the Catholic powers that are in Istanbul at the time are outraged. They say this English guy has turned up. He's captured these great preferential rates. He's now trading arms into Istanbul. And they're absolutely appalled. But because of the deal Elizabeth has done, they're outside the Catholic papal edicts, which say officially you can't trade with infidels and heretics. Now, the Venetians have been doing it for centuries, but it 's always been very low level. The English can do it with impunity, so Harbon prospers throughout the fifteen eighties i mean there's some bumpiness, things go a bit wrong. but there he is. you know, he establishes a trade mission he 's running this whole group of merchants, and again it 's this idea of what 's happening on the ground. You suddenly realize that you 've got predominantly men there are some women, but predominantly men who are based in. Islamic territories working, trading, exchanging, talking, literally metaphorically breaking bread with people. They're converting quietly, sometimes forcible conversion, sometimes clearly it's embraced as a sense of actually, you know, Islam is a theology which believes in one God. It does not believe in idolatry. It's a religion which superficially looks very similar to reformed Protestantism. And Elizabeth knows that and she writes to Murad and she says, we share similar theological approaches. We are people of the book. We do not believe in intercession. We do not believe in, of course, what she would call idolatry. They fudge a notion of Jesus, which is very interesting. So she clearly understands the notion of fascinating that she gets that Islam understands Christ as a prophet but that's of course different for Protestantism so she slightly sidesteps that but she also says you are the great imperial power you are the person I want to work with so Harborn is ferrying these letters backwards and forwards Murad responds very interestingly at first he responds and he's asking his team who is this person Isabel of inglaterra they 've no idea they don 't really know where England is again it 's just some small island and it 's run by a woman. How extraordinary there is a sort of you know, deep sexism to the language of just mystification. He says, fine, his imperial power is about a big tent, and if you are prepared to accept us and be under our sovereignty, we can trade and that 's what Harborne establishes. And it prospers throughout the 1580s, even at the point that there's clearly an awareness that the Spanish Armada is coming. And this is really interesting because Harborn is then involved in trying to ensure that the Ottomans are keeping the Spanish militarily quiet in the Mediterranean to potentially disrupt the Armada that's being constructed to take over England. And I have written a lot about this. And I think, you know, this has to be part of the story that we now tell about these great national moments. It's not all about Francis Drake with his bowls. It's also about what's happening in Istanbul. And it's about people like Harborne, with Walsingham desperately writing to him saying, make sure that they do not sign a peace treaty with Spain, because if they do, we are stuffed. And Harborne actually does that. And he comes back in 1588, quietly, I think, a bit of a hero. Because he's held that line, the Ottomans nominally are saying that they are still at war with the Spanish. How far it affects the fleet that sails, that's questionable. But again, Just what we talked about earlier, there's all the late 19th, early 20th century correspondence of Walsingham, Burley, Murad III, Elizabeth, desperately trying to concoct this anti-Spanish axis at that moment. And that is part of that national story. And part of it is that close, cordial Anglo-Islamic alliance. So I think Harbon comes back very sort of undercover as a bit of a hero when the Armada fails in 1588.
1: Now, along the way there, you mentioned many examples of English Protestants converted to Islam. And one story you tell is of William Harborn's encounter with Hassan Aga, chief eunuch and treasurer of Algiers. Tell us about that.
2: It's the most extraordinary story that I came across in the correspondence. So Harbon is established in Istanbul and he's working with any English merchants in particular who are being arrested or this trouble with trade that's going on across the eastern Mediterranean. And invariably he just says, look, you know, if there's any trouble, don't worry, we have the Sultan, the Sultan has our back. And he writes to this figure who, as you say, is called Hasan Agar who is the chief eunuch and treasurer in Algiers in the late 1570s, early 1580s. And he says, actually, you're called Samson Rowley. And I understand that in 1577, as a merchant, your boat was hijacked by the Ottomans. You were really forcibly converted. You were castrated as a eunuch. But now you're Imperial Treasurer to the ruler of Algiers. And there's this correspondence that goes back and forth. And Harborn says to Samson Rowley, he says, Do you want to come back? And Samson Rowley really goes, You must be joking. I live in a palace in Algiers. <laughs> Why would I come back? And you know, is this point where there's a sense in which at any moment English Protestant culture could just be snuffed out. So at that moment I think, do you know what? Samson Rowley's on the right side. And There's a fascinating image that we still have of Samson Rowley, which I put in the book. And it's amazing. You know, he wears a turban. You know, he's there. He looks like a very regal figure. As I remember my editor saying, there were downsides because he was castrated. And I say, yes, I know. Obviously, there's a downside to being castrated. But the story, again, is just phenomenal because he is one of many figures in this period who do convert. And again, you wonder what that form of conversion means. It's certainly one that for him is enduring because he signs off as Hassan Agar. That's his role. He disappears then from the record. He doesn't reconvert. There are many others that we see, and this builds throughout the early 17th century. The historian Nabil Matar has done a lot of brilliant work on this, on captivity narratives and conversion narratives. And there are thousands of English men and increasingly, as the 17th century progresses, women who convert to Islam. I found only one record of a Muslim Turkish figure who converts to Anglicanism. That's it. And boy, do the English-Anglican theologians make a big deal of it. But that's it. So again, all these encounters, you know, the Ottomans throughout this alliance with Elizabeth, there's no narrative of the Turks ever sending diplomatic embassies to London. Why would they? They're too powerful. You come to us, we don't need to go to you. And that's very much what runs throughout the 1580s and 1590s. The trade and the correspondence increases, it's an increasingly amicable relationship, but it's very much on the terms of the Ottomans, not Elizabeth's. It's the other way around.
1: So just a couple more things to pick up on, because you've said that we've got William Harborne. In Istanbul, Constantinople, as it's been called, Henry Roberts is another man who's now in Marrakesh trying to convince these Islamic rulers to back Elizabeth against Spain. But what is never achieved is the goal of a joint Anglo Islamic attack on the Spanish fleet or armies. Why not?
2: I think the Ottomans don't see it as realistic. I think that the Moroccans come closest to doing it. But the alliances are always so shifting. So the Moroccans are, of course, antagonistic to the Ottomans. So you can't make an enduring deal there. So the English can't ever tie it together sufficiently, I think, and are never clear enough about what do they want. In the end, I think it's survival. They just want to survive. And post-1588, I think some of the heat of that Situation kind of dies away, certainly for the Ottomans. There's no notion that you are trying some form of reconquista. The Barbary states are just not militarily as powerful as the Ottomans. The Ottomans then break away because throughout this period, and it's what we were talking about with Antony Jenkinson, that what the Ottomans are really concerned about is Persia. The interest in Europe is pretty hit and miss. You, know, you get as far as Vienna, but there is no notion of really going beyond there because what do you get from Europe? Probably not that much. But what do you get from Persia and India and China, that's much more significant for the Ottomans. Mm -hmm. And there's very much that story that throughout this period, as the Ottoman sultans look increasingly inward, they also look increasingly eastward. That's their big centre of conflict, not westwards. And again... The Elizabethans are just bit players, so it's never possible to really put that together. And then, you know, the Elizabethans are moving in different directions. The new world sort of appears, and that seems to be perhaps more of an interesting area of development around conquest. Because, again, all this stuff is very much, we see this period colonisation, conquest. Well, not so much, you know, Virginia, tiny little sort of toehold in that There's no notion of conquest going further east because it's just unthinkable. You're not going to try and conquer areas that the Ottomans are controlling. It's just logistically, practically absolutely impossible. And you're right because, you know, in the official diplomatic context, nothing really sticks. So there's always been a tradition of saying, well, so it wasn't really meaningful. It didn't really endure. Well, I think the fallout, you know, in terms of what people were saying, were eating, were encountering, the language changes, the words which enter the English language, the way in which the domestic economy changes in terms of what people are eating, what they're wearing, their understanding of a wider international horizon, their understanding of different religious beliefs, that is profound, I think. And again, it's why... When we start telling the stories, I hate the phrase ordinary people because everybody is extraordinary, but it's that sense of which if we could recover that, I think we would have a much richer story about why these encounters are so powerful and so profound.
1: I think that's absolutely right, and it's very clear from your work that we're seeing connections between Elizabethan England and the Islamic world played out in English culture, in English fashion. And as you've mentioned, that we have these more than 60 Elizabethan and Jacobean players with these Islamic characters or settings or themes. I suppose the last question would be on that point. When we're looking at these plays and we're looking at these theatrical depictions, how are these characters being depicted? Is it negative? Is it wholly sort of a judgment that is not positive towards those who are not English? Or is there anything positive we can find there?
2: Well, here's a little confession, because my day job, although I'm a professor of Renaissance Studies, which covers a multitude of sins, is that I teach literature. So I was trained in literature, although I was very interdisciplinary. So that is what I teach. And my view is that then you're dealing with a different body of material, So it's different if you're looking at a merchant's correspondence to a piece of drama. That obviously works in a very different way. So my view is that, yes, you could say there's a very negative representation. So you see Marlowe's plays, you see the representation of Tamburlaine, you see the representation of the Ottoman Turks. It's blood-soaked, it's violent. Othello, you could say, you know, this is a murderous husband who's racialized as a Moor. And so this is a sort of denigration of the figure of the Moor, the figure of Islam. And that is there. There's no doubt, and I don't want to shy away from that. But at the same time, there is a fascination. There is an understanding that this has affected your culture. There is a sense in which, that's why I teach Othello, my view is not to sort of say this is an image of cosmopolitan religious accommodation and some attempt at sort of comparative religious meeting. Not at all. Not at all. It's about a dangerous, conflicted, violent encounter. And will Othello kill you or will he save you? And that's precisely, tragically, where Desdemona sits. And I think that that's what I'd call the ambivalence. And ambivalence is not ambiguity. Ambivalence is you can love or you can hate at the same time. And that's why the drama is so important. That's why a play like Othello still stays with us and more than ever has that charge I worked recently with English Touring Company with Richard Twyman, who came to me and said, I've read your book, and I want to take seriously the idea that Othello is a Muslim. And let's embed that within the performance. And we took it into towns and cities with significant Muslim communities, and it was electrifying to watch. And it told me that that's what's going on. It's not a sense that we need to either sort of love Othello or hate him. It's to say... He sits at the end of this huge tradition of an Anglo-Islamic encounter, which is deeply ambivalent. Will these people save us or will they sell us to hell? Politically, will we prosper with them? Commercially, will they enrich us? We're really not sure. But a lot of time and energy and encounter is going into that. And that's why I think a play like Othello is so cracklingly still alive. And I think now more than ever after 9-11 and 7-7 and what's going on with Islamophobia in this country, it still has that charge, it still has that power. And that seems to me to key us back in to just the complexity of the history about those Anglo-Islamic relations in the 16th century.
1: And I think that what is so important about your work is that you are drawing together evidence from literature and evidence from those accounts on the ground and doing that cross-discipline work that makes your resulting narratives so rich. And I think what it absolutely has done is it's giving us this new way of seeing the culture of the Elizabethan period and a new narrative about geopolitics in the aftermath of the Reformation, that we have these alliances with Islamic powers beyond Europe that are a consequence of England's fallout with Catholic Europe. And that is fascinating and so important. So thank you so much for coming on Not Just the Tudors to talk about it. And if you're wondering what the book is that we've been talking about, I'm going to remind you that it's called This Orient Isle. And you need to rush out and get a copy now. Before we finish, may I take a moment to shamelessly promote two of my books that are just coming out. So you can order, or pre-order as we call it these days, a book I've been working on called What is History Now? So that's what is history, comma, now, question mark. I've edited it with Helen Carr, author of The Red Prince, a book about John of Gaunt. And if you've ever studied history, you might well have come across What is History? a book published in 1961 by E. H. Carr, in which he argued that history is interpretation. is a classic text. Well, it's 60 years on from that, and Helen Carr, who is E. H. Carr's great-granddaughter and I, have collected 19 essays from some stellar historians, people like Simon Sharma, Peter Frankopan, Maya Jasnoff, Rana Mitter, Bethany Hughes and others, to explore, well, what history is now. So it sets out to answer questions like... How can we write the history of empire? Why does history deserve to be at the movies? Can and should we queer the past? I've written a chapter called How Can We Recover the Lost Lives of Women? So it's called What is History Now? And it's published on the 23rd of September. And it's available as a hardback and also as an audiobook on Audible, etc. I've voiced half the introduction and my chapter. And you can also now order an audio version of my book, A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England, from Audible or direct from Penguin. It's a book about where history happened. It introduces 50 of the best and most interesting surviving Tudor houses, palaces, castles, places in England. And it offers a potted guide to the key characters, stories and events of the Tudor age, from Hampton Court Palace to Montacute House. Tutbury Castle to Hardwick Hall, a 500 year old tree in Wyndham in Norfolk, or a simple memorial in a road in Broad Street, Oxford. It's designed to give you a sense of walking in the footsteps of some of the great iconic figures of the Tudor age. That's called A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England, and it's out on the 30th of September. Thank you so much for your support. We're just about to hit 1 million downloads since launching. Five months ago. I couldn't do it without you. So, may I ask just one more favor? I'd be very grateful if you'd subscribe to Not Just the Tudors and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.